Thank you for having me, and uh, for, yeah, thank you for the invitation. Thank you all for um, coming today. Um, as you can see, the, the title is Met uh, Nutrient Timing and Human Health. Um, and working in the field of nutrition, for me, I like to simplify things, and actually I feel all considerations around nutrition, while nutrition and metabolism is very complex, can be boiled down to three nutritional considerations, those being the quantity, so how much you eat, the type, or what you eat, and then thirdly is timing. And if you think of most diets um, that have existed over the years, they're about the first two, how much of what you eat. And we have high carbohydrate diets, high fiber diets, low fat diets, and so on. And, and more recently, people have started to think about timing, but it's, it's certainly the kind of poor cousin to the amount and type of foods we eat. So I think, um, for starters with a talk like this, um, I should convince you, if you need convincing, that timing is at all important in relation to human health. And to do that, I like to go back to landmark studies. So we'll start with this one. 1964 in The Lancet, we see a paper um, on the frequency of meals and health, generally. Um, they didn't have the drive or capacity for such wonderful data visualizations as we get nowadays. So I've redrawn their table into a simple figure here. And what you're seeing here on the vertical axis is the percent of healthy people, based on a composite measure. But essentially, these are all the things your, your physician might check, um, your blood pressure, glucose, and cholesterol. So this is the number of people who would get a pat on the back and told, you're healthy, you can leave the surgery. And across the horizontal axis is the um, frequency of daily meals. And if, other than dealing with people who eat more than five meals or have supper as well, the first three columns are really showing us people who eat infrequently. If you're eating less than three meals a day, really that means skipping breakfast, up to those that eat the most frequently. And there's this clear dose response where the more meals you eat on a day, the healthier you are likely to be. And um, this finding has been verified repeatedly in many, many populations since. So we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you eat more frequently, you are likely to be a healthier individual. Well, saying shadow of a doubt isn't a very scientific way to put that. Scientists work in doubt, we work in uncertainty. And so, um, helpfully, um, in 2011, I think, um, a group in Alabama calculated from all of this wealth of evidence showing the relationship between feeding frequency and particularly skipping breakfast and health. How confident can we be that people who skip breakfast tend to be overweight? Well, they came up with a p-value of p10 to the minus 42. So that's our shadow of doubt. That's the likelihood that we would see that balance of evidence if, in fact, individuals who skip breakfast are not um, more overweight. I give this talk in various contexts, so just to, to kind of give a feel for that, if I had a deck of cards and shuffled them completely randomly, um, this is the probability of all of the cards being in order suits and all cards 1 to 52. So we're not talking a 1 in 52 probability, it's 1 in the number of atoms in the observable universe. So hopefully while we're not being certain about anything in a truly scientific sense, um, we can be supremely confident that people who skip breakfast tend to be more overweight and also tend to be less healthy. Pretty much any health outcome you can measure, whether it's blood pressure, blood lipids, blood glucose control, body fatness, 
Individuals who skip breakfast tend to exhibit those features. Hold judgment just yet on thinking I'm going to be telling you breakfast is therefore a good thing. This is a correlation, not yet a causal relationship, and we'll be coming back to that um, later in the talk. Just for now though, by show of hands, who in the room would consider themselves a breakfast consumer regularly? And a couple not. Okay, so even with a small sample size, that's roughly reflective of the UK population, maybe 20-25% of people don't consume breakfast regularly, and we'll come back to that point. So my basis for today is going to be talking about how meal timing relates to our metabolism, and in particular how we regulate metabolism. This is the fascinating thing, how our metabolism marches on with this incessant requirement for energy and nutrients, but our nutrients don't arrive in that way, unless you take part in one of the studies we have going on over at Bath where we put a tube in your nose and feed you a calorie a minute, your food arrives in lumps and then sometimes you miss one of those lumps of food and we might say you're in a prolonged fasted state and your physiology has to deal with that. And one of the ways it does that is to anticipate what's coming. So we have these wonderfully um, entrained rhythms in our biology and our metabolism and our behaviour that expect what's coming. And those are set by three factors at the top of the list. And the top one is certainly time. These cycles between light and dark on a daily basis, which we all experience because we're, we're living on the same rock that's spinning around a, a light source. Second to time then, and this light-dark cycle, is nutrients. And we have this other cycle then of fasted-fed cycles, which could happen within or between days. And then third, after those two factors setting our biological rhythms, is activity. And this is again a cycle which we could describe here as sleep-wake or we could just call it rest and activity or even rest to exercise transitions I'll come to. And the point I'm getting at with the cogs here is really that those things can be in synchrony and obviously the natural way of things for humans at least would be during the light part of the cycle is when we find feeding and activity and then of course in the modern world increasingly our food and or activity may not come Certainly the food could come at the dark time of the day, which isn't right. The light could come at the t dark time of day, and activity may not come at all, which is not very healthy. So in the three spaces around the central area of the slide then, I'll be filling in the interactions between these, and we'll start looking at the time-activity interaction. And you've probably seen, in the mainstream media at least, some of these wonderful visualisations we hear about, where it's circadian rhythms are described as this clock machinery ticking away within our cells. And we can go beyond that. You don't even have to cast your mind to think about some kind of molecular clock. We can even look at this, this great study here. This was looking at mice, and actually not within a cell at that molecular level, but even at a cell and tissue level. These animals at the top here are being fed at the correct time for these rodents. So during the dark phase at night, although they do tend to actually eat all day. And we see a circadian rhythm in the sheer size of the hepatocytes and of the liver growing and shrinking over a 24-hour cycle, which, if you feed them at the wrong time, in inverted commas, is completely abolished. So that's interesting, and we have a wealth of data that's taught us a whole lot about mammalian physiology from these animal models. But importantly, these rodents respond well, they eat very differently to humans for a start. They tend to eat over the full 24 hours and mostly at night. Behaviourally, they respond very differently to withdrawal of food. They go bananas and start running all over their cage, scavenging because that suits the kind of nibbling, um, grazing feeding pattern that they like. 
And then metabolically even, some of the switches towards fat oxidation we know are regulated in almost an opposite way in these animals than humans. So we need these studies in humans and that's what we did over at Bath. We um, ran this study where we would take muscle biopsies from human participants throughout a 24-hour cycle to get the first look at these rhythms in gene expression, metabolite accumulation over 24 hours. Um, my PhD student Ian Templeman ran these studies. I know this figure is rather small. That's melatonin there shown over a full 8 a.m. to 8 a.m. cycle with the grey area being dark, the light area being when we had the lights on at 800 lux. And whereas that's melatonin, this lovely bell-shaped curve showing that they've gone to sleep and had a response that peaks during the night. Here I'm showing a couple of the unpublished hormonal responses that we should have out soon. Um, leptin in blue is a satiety hormone that might make you feel more full and that gradually increases during the day. In this study we fed them continually during daylight hours. And then red is ghrelin, which I'm not too um, bothered about talking through what these results mean here, but I do want to introduce these hormones because they'll come up later. And ghrelin is our one hunger hormone that would make you feel hungry and clearly that's suppressed during the day here. The main thing we took from this study, as I say though, was these muscle biopsies every four hours during the cycle. Um, we used RT-PCR to quantify um, a range of genes during that period. And so of course we see the kind of um, more circadian classic period genes showing the ex expected responses over the 24 hour period. The two papers I really want to share with you from this study though is this one in eLife where in addition to our RT-PCR we used a transcriptomic approach with on the left at the bottom here the pre-mRNA and here the um, mRNA and then both levels at the intronic and exonic level at the top, the exonic being the the part of the sequence that's coding. Um, what you're seeing here is we've looked at over 13,000 genes expression at those levels and we found that five to 6,000 of them are showing a rhythm, some level of rhythmicity over 24 hours and about 1,000 with a really um, high amplitude of response. These phase distributions you're seeing here from midnight to midnight over the period then are showing a biphasic distribution and Clearly what you're seeing is this tick-tock happening at 4 o'clock in the morning and 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And the um, transcript accumulation that was happening at 4 o'clock in the morning were genes that have been implicated more in um, inflammation and immune function. And those at 4 o'clock in the afternoon are genes more implicated in protein turnover, metabolic regulation, and particularly mit mitochondrial respiration. So I'll come back to that four o'clock in the afternoon switch. The other thing we did in this study then was analyze the muscle samples using lipidomics. So here, instead of looking at a broad brush approach at multiple genes and their expression, we can look at the availability of lipid metabolites. And over a thousand of them we'll look for here. About 500, we um, measured the rhythmic um, accumulation over 24 hours. While there was a kind of battery of graphs in this paper, the main thing I'm pointing out here in terms of the major species on the right was that these rhythmic, gene, uh, rhythmic lipid metabolites we're looking at aren't those really involved in energy metabolism as a fuel, like triglyceride, but more these phospholipids that are present in the cell membranes um, in muscle tissue, particularly these sphingolipids. And again, note that we're seeing a nadir at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, 
and the zenith at four o'clock in the morning. So a clear tick-tock of metabolism at those signs. And I'll come back to what those sphingolipids might mean, but because these lipids are in the outer leaflet of the cell membrane, they have been implicated in insulin signaling and glucose uptake, so the exchange of nutrients across the membrane. So that first third there is really just to introduce this idea that we're looking at metabolism over a 24-hour cycle. For the main part of this talk, though, I want to look at the interaction between time and nutrients and come back to this idea that we um, have certain times of day when we might be more likely to fast that have been suggested to have effects. And all of my research at Bath works on this framework of energy balance. And that is that energy balance, which is directly tied to your body mass, is necessarily the product of, or the, the difference between energy in and energy out. There's complexities in metabolism, yes, but this is true that calories in and calories out works. Um, an eight-year-old should know that, so I have my eight-year-old write out these parts of the slide, so he's aware. When we look beneath the surface, energy in there is just the sum of our macronutrients ingested, the nutrients that provide energy, multiplied by their energy density. But on the right here, we also know all of the components of energy expenditure, those being resting metabolic rate, the number of calories required just to sustain you, diet-induced thermogenesis, this is the increase in metabolism to process the food you've ingested, and then physical activity thermogenesis, or physical activity energy expenditure. And this is any further increase in metabolic rate through moving around. And what I'm interested in is what I call energy balance interactions. How any change in any one of those components, either prescribed or naturally occurring, has the potential to elicit compensatory changes in any one or all of those components. So back to breakfast. Individuals who skip breakfast tend to be more overweight and less healthy. Those same cross-sectional studies show us that individuals who skip breakfast also tend to follow all other unhealthy lifestyle factors, or rather not follow the guidelines for anything else. So it may be just a symptom that if you're the kind of person who follows the age-old advice to have breakfast, you're also the kind of person who doesn't smoke, goes to the gym, eats more fiber, eats less fat, eats less salt. And those cross-sectional studies show us that. So it was far from established that individuals who skip breakfast are leaner and healthier because they skip breakfast, uh, who have breakfast, are leaner and healthier because they have breakfast. But nonetheless, the media and the public are inclined to draw that causal inference. And so we have all of these rumors of breakfast kickstarts metabolism, maybe affecting RMR. Breakfast makes you snack less later in the day, maybe affecting energy intake. Breakfast makes you be more active. Well, let's explore those things. So the study we did then, we had um, people randomized into one group who were asked to eat breakfast for six weeks. At least 700 calories every day by 11 o'clock for six weeks. And let's not forget then, if they are simply adding 700 calories into a diet where they didn't have breakfast normally, they should gain 4.1 kilos in six weeks. Of course, energy balance isn't static like that, it's dynamic. What we're actually measuring in this study isn't whether they gain weight, it's what other factors will change to compensate for that. And then if you're someone who has breakfast, we ask, some, we ask people to fast zero calories until midday for six weeks and we check compliance. You'll see how we did that. And again, if I did literally subtract all your energy until midday and that was 700 calories, 
you should lose 4.1 kilos. There was a smaller control group who just do their usual thing for six weeks and I won't show you much data from them other than to confirm that indeed they do stay the same weight if you do nothing to them. The full protocol is um, published in Trials Journal. It was funded by BBSRC. The other thing you'll see in that trials manuscript is that we hypothesized that it would be the physical activity would be the main component that would adjust in response to breakfast or fasting. So briefly then, if you had volunteered for this study, there would be an initial crossover phase where we'd ask you to the lab twice, once to consume breakfast and we measure your acute response, and once to skip breakfast and we measure your acute response. And then you would be randomised into one of these groups for six weeks and then we bring you back to see how you've adapted. So I'll be showing you today then three elements of data for energy in on the left there and three elements of our data for energy expenditure. Starting with energy in then, these are the data we published in International Journal of Obesity. Um, and what we did in that crossover trial where individuals have once had breakfast and once not had breakfast, we presented them with this infinite bowl of pasta so they could just consume ad libitum as much as they'd like, there was a 50 calorie difference. So they've either had or consumed, if I tag on the breakfast on the top, they would then have eaten more if they had had breakfast on the day. So what we're seeing here in a, uh, admittedly an artificial lab environment is that if you skip breakfast, you actually eat a very similar amount at lunchtime. And that's consistent with all of the survey data that we have from society. So I'm convinced that this is a real world finding that actually skipping breakfast doesn't make you eat so much more later in the day that you end up having eaten more overall. This finding becomes more understandable when we then look at some of the appetite regulatory hormones we measured. Um, this is Enha Chowdhury, who was the PhD student who ran this work. I'm just picking out two of those hormones again, which is why I introduced these two earlier. Ghrelin in the top left being our hunger hormone, and satiety being a, a more satiety, or uh, leptin being a um, satiety or fullness hormone. I'll just take a moment to orientate you to how these figures look, so that um, when you see future ones you can follow. So this is the, they have breakfast or fast, and then this is the pasta lunch, where remember they've eaten essentially the same quantity of food. We deal with the fasting group then. Ghrelin is already high, that's the red line. And then if you skip breakfast, understandably it creeps up a little more by midday. And then we get the expected suppression with the ingestion of pasta. They present to the lab in the morning with the same ghrelin level, obviously, because they've all arrived in a fasted state. When they get that carbohydrate-rich breakfast, we get the expected suppression of ghrelin. But exactly the same mean and almost the same standard deviation by midday. So based on appetite hormones, it's completely understandable why, whether or not you've had breakfast, you're going to eat the same amount at lunchtime. Um, I'm not talking too much about it now, but it was really fascinating for us to see that that pasta lunch had no effect at lunchtime on um, ghrelin, what's known as a second meal effect. So it might be that ghrelin actually isn't suppressed by carbohydrates, it's only suppressed by your first carbohydrates of the day. And similarly, leptin tends to respond in a bit more of a delayed way, um, and actually more over weeks and months, but we don't see any change at the, um, by lunchtime, but by the evening meal, those who'd had breakfast seem to have higher levels of this fullness hormone, so uh, perhaps we should have measured the evening meal in the lab, but by that point it had already been a very long day um, of testing. What we do have though, further to this paper uh, that was in British Journal of Nutrition if you're interested, was over the six weeks then, the third part I'm going to show you for energy intake 
is the free living um, data. So this was people during that first week and the last week of the six weeks keeping directly weighed food diaries to see what they're eating during the time and completely consistent with the lab-based data that we saw where they actually eat similarly from midday onwards, completely consistent with other data from national surveys, we see that individuals who have breakfast do eat more food overall. These are the data for, we did this whole experiment in lean individuals and then in obese individuals. If they responded the same, I'll just show you one or other and won't reference that, but here there's a slight difference because this is the lean individuals. We've prescribed a 700 calorie difference in energy intake on the day and that's almost all still there. So the breakfast group are eating 540 calories more. When I click now, the obese data go over the top. It was a slightly smaller difference. This is suggesting that obese individuals might compensate slightly more for skipping breakfast, as in they eat slightly more later in the day than an elite individual, but still they're eating less than they would have done had they had breakfast. So what we've done so far then is ruled out one of our myths. If there is a causal link between having breakfast and being lean, it's not because it makes you eat less overall. Clearly all of the cross-sectional acute lab-based and free-living RCT data tells us people who eat breakfast eat more food. So if they're leaner, it has to be something to do with the other side of the energy balance equation. And we'll deal with one slide for each of those three components then. Resting metabolic rate, first of all. We had absolutely no reason to hypothesize any change in resting metabolic rate. Um, and you can see from the bars here, you could almost place a spirit level across the top. So resting metabolic rate was stable to within eight calories per day um, in our study. So whether you had breakfast or not didn't change resting metabolic rate, other than had it elicited a major change in body composition or body mass, that would require changes in thyroid hormones, which are shown here. I'm not going to go in detail through the pattern on those figures. Suffice to say, T3 and T4 showed no difference between groups. So again, understandable by why resting metabolic rate is stable. So we'll move on to our next component of energy expenditure, which was diet-induced thermogenesis. This cost of processing foods, which tends to be about 10% of the calories you ingest. So if you've got a 2,000 calorie diet, we'd expect about 200 calories a day spent on processing those foods. And this does come up in the literature. People suggest that maybe one of the benefits of having breakfast and maybe one of the reasons that breakfast consumers are leaner is because they expend more calories through DIT. However, that's really flawed reasoning because whatever way you carve that up, if you eat a thousand calories and pat yourself on the back for the hundred you've just stimulated your body to use, you're still ninefold worse off in terms of the deal. You've got 900 calories in for that, for that relationship. So yes, in our hands, DIT was higher, but absolutely you would predict it to be higher. So we're talking about 20 to 40 calories more per day. So it's very predictable, very small, and that is not going to be why breakfast consumers are leaner if indeed that relationship is causal in the first place. So we're left with one component of energy expenditure left. The one that we hypothesized would differ between treatments. Um, now it wasn't any particular stroke of genius to say we hypothesize this is the difference. No one had been able to measure this with any degree of accuracy. Clearly surveys and retrospective recall were never going to get a handle on this because we weren't hypothesizing that people who have breakfast suddenly feel incredibly motivated and join a gym. 
we were hypothesizing that it would be that low-level, spontaneous lifestyle activity that might change, which you really can't detect with a questionnaire or even a poor monitor of activity. What we use a lot at Bath are these ActiHeart monitors. It's essentially a two-lead ECG, which is measuring heart rate variability, but combining that with accelerometry, and then uses a branch-chain equation that has been validated to show against doubly-labeled water that it's very good at measuring physical activity energy expenditure, and particularly this low-level lifestyle activity, which we hypothesize would differ. So these are the data for our lean population. Um, the breakfast group were here not just significantly more active for what that's worth, but more importantly, a big meaningful difference. 450 calories per day, kilocalories per day, more energy expended above that resting level than the, um, than the fasting group. So that's a nice simple figure. Now I overlay some of the complexity because one of the really great things with these act heart monitors is unlike doubly labeled water which would just give you a weekly average, we know when these chunks of activity were happening. So we can draw a line here at midday and say this is the AM-PM split. The difference was certainly bigger and more consistent in the morning, which is perhaps understandable as that's when the intervention was applied. And then I can overlay physical activity thresholds. How high these spikes go tell us how intensely the person was moving. And what we find then is that it's not just during the morning, but indeed it is the light and to an extent the moderate activity that is the cause of this. So our conclusion is if you skip breakfast, then you're less active overall due to a reduced activity during the morning in that fasting period where you miss your spontaneous lifestyle type activity. It wasn't a conscious decision to be less active. It's the really low level stuff you don't really think about. Those were the lean data. The finding is replicated in obese individuals here. So it's again the morning and particularly the, the morning on. It has to be the light and moderate activity because our obese cohort really don't do any vigorous level activity, but it replicates the finding in an, a separate cohort that it is that breakfast makes you less active during the day, which again is opposite to the animals. If you fast a mouse, it's going to take a more proactive strategy of trying to find food rather than waiting for food to come to it. So that's our um, time and nutrient interaction, but it's brought up this role of physical activity. So the last part of the talk is going to be look at this interaction between now we've got a group who are being less active um, during the time when they're fasting. And we'll look at really the health applications of that in terms of this triad of body composition, metabolic control and blood lipid profile. So in terms of body composition, these are the only data from the control group I'm showing just to demonstrate that they were weight stable. But we used a DEXA scanner, as you can see in the top left, to quantify the, the fat mass uh, and fat-free mass losses when it, within each group. So if you look on the left, this is our lean cohort in each group. And on the right, it says overweight, but they were actually obese individuals. Um, and the dark blue is when they're gaining fat mass. So you can clearly see that if you prescribe a big breakfast to obese people, they gain lots of weight and it's body fat. But I'm actually more interested on this figure, not in the two groups where we get weight gain here and weight loss on the end for the lean people fasting. It's the two groups in the middle who don't change significantly. That's fascinating, right? So if you're a lean person and we prescribe you at least 700 calories every day by 11 o'clock, 
that was difficult for everybody, but some participants really found that a challenge. They certainly don't gain any weight. If anything, they've lost a little. So it's showing that lean individuals are quite good at compensating for a prescribed overfeed. But most practically relevant is this one. We know that a lot of overweight and obese individuals skip breakfast in the hope of weight loss. I mean, there's certainly no evidence that we saw weight loss, and this is about as extreme as it gets. They didn't touch a single calorie until midday every day for six weeks. And again, I'll show you in a moment how we know they complied with that. So then on to metabolic control. On this kind of panel, I'll be zooming in to show you three levels of evidence, um, kind of four actually. So one in the top left will be the kind of systemic metabolites, the kind of blood test your doctor might do. Um, we will then zoom in onto that and look at some of the molecular regulation. In the top right is tissue level metabolic control, and then across the bottom is the really practically relevant free living glucose responses. So starting at the systemic level, we'll ignore this panel here and just focus on this one. This is the same layout as I showed you for ghrelin. So clearly with it being insulin, the blue line reflects when you have breakfast you get an insulin response. We get then at lunchtime that interesting second meal effect whereby the first meal of the day primes you to have a better glycemic control and lower insulin response to lunch. Um, so that's what it is on the day. Here then is six weeks later whether those two groups respond differently and they don't. So one of those studies where it's a negative finding but actually an important negative finding because a lot of people will say well, you have to adapt to skipping breakfast to get the benefits. And this shows that there's clearly no metabolic adaptation to that. And we can now, as I say, zoom into the molecular level and say that's not just evidence at the systemic tissue level, but actually on the left here, the protein content of GLUT4, which is responsible for clearing the carbohydrate from the bloodstream in response to insulin. AKT1 and 2, or PKB as you prefer, um, no changes there pre to post intervention. And we even then did an insulin stimulation. So this is unstimulated and then an increasing dose of insulin. And although you phosphorylate AKT, no difference between groups or over the treatment. So we can understand perhaps then why at a systemic level we don't see a change in glucose control. However, when we're doing those tests, we have a human, we're feeding them sugars and measuring their glucose and insulin responses. The majority of glucose you ingest is being taken by muscle tissue. So your systemic response in the circulation reflects really what the muscle was doing. What we did was took adipose biopsies from the abdominal region and then essentially those cells would be able to do an oral glucose tolerance test of their own. So your adipocytes then would be isolated and then they can be provided with a glucose medium that we can measure and again stimulated with either no insulin physiological level or a supraphysiological level. So it's understandable why the lines are graduating upwards in both cases with the stimulation of insulin causing glucose uptake. But the key point here was that the breakfast group but not the fasting group were increasing over the intervention. So having had breakfast for six weeks had made the adipocytes take up um, more glucose. In the lean group, I'm now going to replace these data on the same axis with the obese group. And there's a couple of things that jump out. One is the effect of breakfast is now gone, but the second is the absolute rates have dropped straight down. And perhaps you might have predicted that, right? Every time we show a metabolic response and then contrast a lean and obese group, we expect to see what we might consider an inferior response from the 
obese phenotype. But actually my colleague uh, Javier Gonzalez normalized those changes. So at the top is what I just showed you, the drop with the obese group. But he normalized here for the amount of fat mass on the body measured by DEXA. And interestingly, that completely corrects the difference. And that makes a lot of sense, right? If an obese individual um, has twice the amount of adipocytes on their body, it's natural physiology for each one or per gram of tissue to decide to take up less glucose. Otherwise, that, that wouldn't be an, an effective response for the wider circulation. So we've dealt with the systemic level, the molecular tissue level. Now really onto the practicalities. During that six weeks, we had individuals wearing over on the left there these continuous glucose monitors. They're becoming more and more popular now. And in fact, when we did this study a few years back, we used the abdominal ones. You may have seen these out and about now. Lots of people seem to have the ones worn on the tricep. And these monitors measure your interstitial glucose concentrations every five minutes a day, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. So this isn't actually a line graph. That's just the frequency of measurement shown there. So it's wonderful as a scientist to have that kind of sampling resolution. Um, the downside is it makes it an absolute nightmare to analyze the data. Um, and you need to come up with some kind of summary statistic. So you're seeing here then in week one, the red line is the fasting group. And again, that's how we know that they didn't sneakily have any breakfast because the glucose was consist consistently dropping till midday when they suddenly eat. The recommended way to express these data in a meaningful way is to look at um, a coefficient of variation to tell you how variable the kind of frequency and magnitude of glycemic excursions. And when we did that for, I mean, so for the morning, it's obviously greater in the breakfast group because they ate food and the other group didn't. But from midday onwards, they didn't eat any differently. And yet what we're seeing is that by week six, the fasting group have increased their glucose variability. So this may be reflective of more impaired control of blood glucose under that free living condition. And then the final thing for me to show you, which is less deep than the kind of metabolic control, it would have been remiss of us not to look at blood glucose profile because people would be interested in knowing what would my GP make of this and that would be all of the standard kind of cholesterols and blood lipid checks. These are now the obese population. I'm not showing you these for the lean because lean individuals tend to have healthy blood lipids anyway and aren't at risk of cardiovascular disease so much. Even our obese individuals though, um, in Bath, even when we're recruiting overweight and obese individuals, they tend to be healthier or on the healthier end. So, you know, total cholesterol and LDL cholesterol could be lower in these individuals, but it's certainly not high. And there's no, a, a small significant increase in LDL, but I think that's um, significant but not meaningful. And then equally, triglycerides, um, are not too high to start with. Uh, serum C-reactive protein is perhaps a better measure of cardiovascular disease risk than the, the other uh, cholesterol or blood lipids generally. Um, this does verify that the obese population are at a higher risk, but absolutely no evidence that either having or skipping breakfast for six weeks affects those. And I've put a heat map in here just showing the change in expression of 44 genes over that six weeks. Um, where green just means something increased and, and red would mean a, a down-regulation of the expression. Really not a lot going on at that level. And the only couple of things which make sense really is that the lean group but not the obese showed a change in some genes at the top there that were consistent with those are genes implicated in lipid turnover. And of course we saw fat loss in that group. And then we see uh, one change in both groups that was relevant to insulin signaling.
So putting all that together, um, I need to give you some conclusions. And one of the things I like about this software is that you don't really have any text, let alone too much text. So I kind of begrudge then even having text for conclusion bullet points. So I'm going to do that with the help of um, the Daily Mail, maybe to tell you what the conclusions weren't. Um, so the first story is why eating breakfast can help you lose weight. Well, remember, in neither group did the breakfast group lose weight. And for the obese, they even gained weight when they had breakfast. So that's the opposite of what the conclusion on weight loss would be. Then a month or two later, the same newspaper published an article, breakfast is not the most important meal of the day. Um, it doesn't speed metabolism or aid weight loss. So now they've got the weight loss thing correct, but the metabolism thing wrong. I did ask the Daily Mail for permission to include these headlines in my talks, and they said that was fine, um, so long as we name the journalists who wrote them, which was interesting because I've been credited with this next one, which is a question, but then the subheader you may not be able to read says, eating breakfast kickstarts digestion, which I would never say, although technically it can't be wrong because you can't be digesting anything until you eat. Uh, then we have breakfast isn't the most important meal of the day again. Um, but you should never skip breakfast and there was about 20 more headlines I could have given you. So um, just to finish on a light-hearted note, um, I can never help when I'm seeking out these headlines for a talk, just casting my eye down to the, um, the comments sections below and to see what the great British public make of this research. So one perceptive individual says, didn't the Daily Mail publish a story recently stating the exact opposite? Uh, yes, they did. <laughs> Someone else shares with us that the French and Italians are very slim and they don't eat breakfast. They've cottoned on to the whole uh, capitalising one word in every sentence there. Someone adds, my wife's home cooking keeps me slim. I can mostly only stomach a few mouthfuls. Our dog is thin as well. I'm the same. I only eat breakfast if I have an exam and then I hate it. Really, people who skip breakfast eat less calories over the whole day. Nice one, Einstein, with two words for Einstein's, a nice touch. And this is nice, sometimes the public start their own little argument in the comments section. So somebody says, who says we have to eat three times a day, including breakfast? And somebody replies, I said it, sorry, it was a bad day. If I was trying to clarify some of the confusion, my difficulty is I didn't do these studies to work out whether or not we should have breakfast. I did it because I'm a scientist interested in, actually interested in fasting, but Bath fasting study didn't have the same ring to it. What I would point you in the direction of, though, is our paper. All the papers I've shown today are open access, so you can get them, including this one. It's entitled, Is Breakfast the Most Important Meal of the Day? Because when I realised there was no paper on PubMed called that, I couldn't resist it. But we say in the second line, these trials were categorically not designed to answer whether breakfast is the most important meal of the day. But that review does kind of summarise the things that did and didn't respond in the study. We're just about there. Um, I just want to acknowledge the, the group at Bath. That's in her Chowdhury next to me, who uh, did the breakfast study. And Judith, who was the postdoc running all of the biochemical analyses, has now left, and, and, uh, left academia um, since her postdoc. But I wanted to add her photograph on. The other individuals to mention here, Ian is the tall guy with the scarf at the back. He did the overnight um, project that I started with. But then my colleague Javier, who's the tall guy next to Ian, and his PhD student, Rob, with the yellow hood, they just had, uh, um, it came out just the end of last week, um, and we're still under embargo until the weekend news, so I couldn't really add too much in, 
But um, this was the picture from Rob, who's finished his PhD and now travelling in Nepal, and tweeted a picture of himself having heard the news on a trek that his paper was accepted in JCEM. So this one's all over the media at the moment. And so I did just want to quickly share with you the, the main effect of when we look at the interaction with exercise. Should you have breakfast before or after a workout or doing your morning activity? And I suppose the two bit things to say is on the left, if you do exercise before you have your breakfast, so fasted exercise, you'll burn twice the amount of fat. Um, some people have been critical that this study only included 30 people, but when the effect is that it doubles the response, how many do you want in your RCT to, to show that that happens? And he measured that fat oxidation in every workout for that six-week period, so it was about 2,000 samples that he analysed to do that. And then further to that, the relationship in the top right was that while individuals exercising in the fasted state didn't lose more weight, didn't get fitter in terms of their VO2 max, their insulin sensitivity improved more, and that change correlated closely with the proportion of saturated fatty acids in the um, phospholipids that were measured. So again, going back to these membrane lipids. So a whistle-stop tour, I know we've kind of covered three different areas there. I'm happy to take any questions on what we've done or what we're doing next with that. And thank you very much for your attention.